0: Welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. We are attorneys for NFP in the Benefits Compliance Department. And we use this podcast as a way to bring you the latest news on things that relate to employee benefits. We have been doing a series on the single-payer systems, and we will get back to that series, but we wanted to take a minor diversion from our focus on that to talk about um, something that has cropped up recently, and that's the Association Health Plan Lawsuit and the recent ruling in the D.C. District Court. Um, This has been all over the news recently, and we've certainly gotten questions from employers and those who have been interested in forming AHPs or even those who have been in an AHP. So we wanted to take some time to discuss this and unpack the ruling and, and talk about what lies ahead. So, Chase, give us some background.
1: The primary purpose of an AHP, again, that's an association health plan. The primary purpose is to allow smaller groups to band together to get better deals get better benefit plans, better premium rates, and to avoid some of the ACA and ERISA rules that maybe make premiums higher. But getting to the law, and that's where we're, we like to spend our time. Under ERISA, AHPs are considered Multiple Employer Welfare Arrangements, or MEWAs. You'll hear that term. This is because a MEWA is defined as a plan that covers the employees of two or more non-commonly owned employers. So employers that are not part of a control group, we're not talking about a parent or a subsidiary here, Uh, But ERISA's in play either way here. ERISA governs single employer plans and MIWAs. Um, For this narrow group of MIWAs that are considered association health plans, ERISA and some of the other laws, like the ACA that we're gonna talk about, work slightly differently. If the arrangement is considered a bona fide association health plan, then ERISA uh, treats it as a single employer plan. The DOL had rules in place prior to 2018 that tried to put parameters on how to qualify as an AHP. We'll call those the old rules. And then the DOL updated those rules in 2018. Uh, We'll call those the 2018 rules, and that's really the district court's, uh, the ruling in the case that we're talking about today is all about the friction between those two sets of rules.
0: So we have the old rules, we have the new rules that make it easier to form an AHP, and then we have the state law, which can kind of really wipe out the effectiveness of either one of those. Right. So that's the old rules. So old rules make it difficult to form an AHP, hence uh, they came out with some new rules. So uh, what's at issue with those?
1: Right. So in 2018, the DOL, pursuant to a White House executive order, directing them to try and make this a little bit easier to access, The DOL published new rules. These were in proposed form in January 2018, and then finalized in June of 2018. Uh, Those rules expand the definition of AHPS to include employers without a commonality of interest if they were located in the same state or metropolitan area. Um, So that's a definite expansion from the old rule, which said you had to be within a, you had to have both of those. So basically, made it one or the other: either a commonality of interest or in the same uh, geographic location. Um, the,
0: the example I think of most readily is, is a chamber of commerce. You're going to have a, a group of, uh, businesses that do not have a commonality of interest, but certainly have a geographic representation.
1: Right. So perfect example there. Um, and that would be enough to establish AHP, uh, status just because they're in the same st- same state. Now, the f- rules went even further when it was talking about geographical location. They said, actually, it's state or metropolitan area. And they gave examples that include um, some f- familiar ones for our friends on the East Coast, DC, Maryland, and Virginia. That would all be considered as the same metropolitan area, as well as New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. So trying to get over the idea of state lines and really focusing on geographic areas. Um, so this is a much easier bar, to meet. If you're in the same state, you're good, even if you share nothing in common from a business perspective. Um, If you share a line of business or a profession, you're good, even if you aren't in the same state. Um, And then the idea of state is expanded to metropolitan area. Um, Also, and really importantly, AHPs could form for the primary purpose of providing benefits. This was something that was prohibited under the old rules. You just have to show a substantial business purpose. And on this, the 2018 rules provided fairly minimal proof. It could be anything from setting business standards and practices down to just simply publishing a newsletter. So um, a lot of loosening of the rules when it comes to showing this business purpose and the idea that you can actually come together just to get benefits.
0: Okay, so we have a relaxed rule on providing benefits as being a, a substantial purpose of forming an AHP and then relaxed rules or elimination of the rule of commonality of interest. So is there, was there anything else that was key?
1: Yeah. So in addition to those two expansions, the 2018 rules allow AHPs to cover what they call, quote, working owners. So that includes someone like a sole proprietor, an independent contractor, um, someone who would not otherwise be considered an employee. Um, That's a big deal. And we'll see that becomes a major focus of the lawsuit here. But previously, you had to have an employment nexus. You had to be an employee of a participating employer. You couldn't be a sole proprietor, a single single person running a business and be able to participate as an employer or an employee. So the old rule says no owners, no sole proprietors, no independent contractors. 2018 rules say any of those can participate.
0: Yeah, I can see where that's going to cause some... Um, some conflict because we think of ERISA as a rule relating to employers. Exactly. Um, So tell us about the lawsuit. How did it get started?
1: Yeah, so following the finalization of those 2018 rules, so back in right at the end of June and July of 2018, a coalition of state attorneys general uh, led by New York and Massachusetts, they filed a lawsuit challenging the rules, basically stating that the DOL violated the Administrative Procedure Act by overreaching in its regulatory authority. They're basically saying they're going beyond what they're allowed to do as a regulatory agency and and going beyond what the statute of ERISA uh, requires. Quickly, the other states involved that joined up with uh, New York and Massachusetts are California, Delaware, D.C., Kentucky, Maryland, New Jersey, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Washington. Uh, so I think we saw uh, these states just come out immediately after these rules and say, hey, we we don't agree with this. We want to establish ourselves and uh, get involved to make sure we have some uh, regulatory authority over MIWAs that are forming in our state and associations that are forming in our states.
0: I, I could guess, but I would imagine that there is a similar political leaning of the state attorneys generals, I'm sure, that we see. Um, this issue um, bifurcated along political lines.
1: Yes, I'm I'm certain that's part of it too, but we're gonna talk about in a minute some legitimate reasons why they might be uh, interested in this as well beyond politically. But uh, yeah, I do think yeah. there is a line, uh, a clear line of political sides when it comes to this battle.
0: Yeah, well, well tell us about the main arguments of the state AGs.
1: Yeah, so the AGs lawsuit claimed a couple of things, but uh, the basically that the DOL's new interpretation of employer was inconsistent with the purpose and language of ERISA, Uh, that the 2018 rules allowed business, uh, some without employees, to form AHPs and avoid the ACA's consumer protections. Uh, We talked about those ACA things that apply to individual and small group plans. Self-insured AHPs could also avoid certain state insurance laws, including uh, benefits and other mandates meant to protect the residents of that particular state. And then the AG's lawsuit claimed that the 2018 rules increased the risk for consumer fraud, and harm and jeopardize states' ability to add stronger consumer protections and protect against that consumer fraud. So a quick note on that actually to help explain why these states maybe beyond the political reasons are getting in and trying to protect consumers. Going back, there was a lot of fraud and abuse in the MIWA context, particularly for self-insured MIWAs. Many states dealt with situations where a MIWA was formed and marketed and many individuals joined and were promised benefits. And unfortunately, many of those MIWAs were underfunded. The sponsors of the MIWAs either didn't make appropriate contributions or failed to continue to make contributions.
0: Or were just bad actors. Or were just bad
1: actors, right? They saw it as a quick scam to make some money, and then they bailed. So uh, most of that abuse occurred in the self-insured context. The MIWA took on the responsibility to insure the benefits and did a poor job or was fraudulent. So you'll see state regulation is generally more focused on regulating and, in some instances, prohibiting self-insured MIWA's. States are generally more hostile towards those self-insured arrangements and more hospitable or amenable to fully insured arrangements uh, since the carrier is much more likely to be solvent and be able to pay benefits or at least that's kind of been the experience of the MIWA world of past.
0: So let's uh, just dig into the case a bit more. We hear that the main arguments of the state AG's um, and their concerns and and uh, how did the court um, come down on those arguments?
1: Yeah, the court really liked them, actually. Two thumbs up from the judge agreeing with the states. Um, The judge concluded that the states had standing, which was a big issue in the case. And I'm not going to go into that very far. Um, But basically, concluded they had standing to be in court, that there was some harm or potential harm, and then concluded that the DOL didn't reasonably interpret ERISA, and so invalidated the primary provisions of the 2018 rules. So those included this definition of commonality of interest and the inclusion of working owners. I wanted to throw out a few quotes here to kind of give a flavor from where the judge was coming from and he was pretty uh, adamant and and, uh, interesting in his choice of language. But he said that the the so-called primary purpose of an AHP and commonality of interest expansion in the 2018 rules failed to meaningfully limit the types of associations that qualify as sponsors of an ERISA plan. Uh, specifically, he said it's such a the 2018 rules established such a low bar that virtually no association could fail to meet it, and he therefore concluded that the new interpretation uh, fails to set meaningful limits on the character and activities of an association that qualify as a single employer under ERISA, and that is an impermissible expansion of the statutory design of ERISA. So he has lots to say about that. The commonality of interest rule specifically says. Common geography doesn't necessarily correlate with a common interest, especially when the interest of diverse employers' members may be different or even conflicting. So again, we're getting back to this idea of a little bit of a law 101. ERISA is the statute. You have what the statute controls. Regulatory agencies are allowed to put out regulations and their interpretation of how they think that rule, uh, that statute should work. But if what they are saying, the regulatory agency is saying, goes beyond what is meant under the statute, or what is specifically required under the statute, then a judge or a court like this can say, "Okay, DOL, you've gone a little bit too far in, in your interpretation there, and, and therefore we're not going to we're going to say that that's invalid."
0: Right, right. But I know a, a sensitive issue, and all of this is expanding it to include sole proprietors. So, what did the court think about that?
1: Yeah. So this is another one that the court took issue with. Uh, Because ERISA is meant to regulate benefit plans that arise from employment relationships, the inclusion of working owners impermissibly expands ERISA's regulation to plans outside of such employment relationships. So uh, the judge again used strong language here that saying the outcome would be absurd. It ignores ERISA's definitions and structures. It ignores case law and ERISA's 40-year history of excluding employers without employees. He also found uh, the DOL's rules unpalatable under the ACA. The ACA relies on ERISA's definition of employer and employee, and an employer is one with two or more employees. A group health plan also is uh, only subject to HIPAA and the ACA if it has two or more active employees. So the judge really found unpersuasive this idea that an association counts as an employer under the ACA and ERISA because the two working owners also serve as employees and because the two working owners are also employers. So I'm no good at math, Suzanne, but this was an interesting quote from the judge. He says the DOL's reasoning transforms two individuals, neither of whom works for the other, into a total of three employers and two employees. And so the judge thinks that is considered double duty, strains the reading of ERISA's definition of employee and the ACA's definition of of employer and he went even further and says this really undermines the market structure that Congress purposely placed in the ACA to distinguish rules that apply to individuals versus small employers versus large employers.
0: But the whole idea of ERISA being a, you know, a law that is governing employers certainly does seem to go fly in the face of having sole proprietors included. But right. so obviously that brings us to the question of we've got you know, these limited number of states that were involved in the actual lawsuit, and so we have an outcome that shows that it's in in favor of the states. What does that mean? What is the possible outcome from the judge's decision? And what is the impact of it?
1: Yeah, so a couple options that could come out here, and again, we don't know exactly, um, but basically the DOL could seek a stay, uh, meaning the decision would not go into effect pending an appeal, and then the DOL would appeal the decision Um, That's, uh, I don't know if that's the most likely, but it's definitely a a strong possibility, right? The It challenges and says, okay, fine, let's see what the appellate court says and perhaps this works its way all the way up to the Supreme Court, who knows. Uh, Any appeal would go to the Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. Um, That's where this was filed, it was in the District of Columbia and so that's where the appeal would go. So that would be the first option if there is a stay then basically we would just be in limbo once again, but the DOL's rules would remain in effect essentially until the case was resolved at a higher level. The second option is the DOL could try and find a way to recraft the rule in a way that meets the district court's ruling. So in other words, going back and saying, okay, um, you took issue with uh, including sole proprietors or working employers or working owners. Let's carve those back out and see if we can craft this in another way that solves that problem. They would still have to get over this idea of commonality, but maybe they come up with a a different creative idea to get around that. Third, the DOL could rescind the rule altogether, and that would just be, we're going back to how it used to be, um, a little bit more of a challenge for AHPs to form. There certainly is a way for them to do it. It's just a higher bar to meet. So that's another option.
0: I don't see Trump administration throwing their hands up and and saying, okay, I give up and (laughs) uh, running away from uh, any fight. Unlikely. But we will, so is it clear, just to put you on the spot a bit, so is it clear, for example, we've seen a lot of AHPs formed in Nevada. Mm -hmm. um, And so do we have any clear indication yet what that would mean for those states that weren't involved in the lawsuit?
1: Yeah, it's not clear. Um, I wish I was a litigation expert, and we will check in and see if we can find the answers on this. But for now, it's not entirely clear whether this opinion uh, would take effect just for the states that were participants in the lawsuit. I listed those off earlier. Or whether it would expand to cover all states. Nevada was not on that list, and so uh, potentially there's an argument that because they were not part of the lawsuit, the, the ruling does not apply to them. Um, but we we just don't know. We've seen other decisions that have that nationwide effect and some that don't, so uh, we'll have to wait and
0: see on that. So can you tell me any more other practical impacts for AHPs, certainly those that have already formed?
1: Yeah, I mean, you just mentioned these ones out in Nevada. There's others for sure. It leaves all of these AHPs in a difficult spot. Um, For one thing, I think it prevents the formation of self-insured AHPs under the 2018 rules, those rules would have gone into effect on April 1st, 2019. So this decision coming down right before that um, and before that effective date probably um, prevents the formation of newly uh, new self-insured AHPs that are trying to form under the 2018 rules. I would think that would be something you wouldn't want to attempt at this point. For those uh, AHPs that have already formed pursuant to the new rules, really just a your spot. Probably best not to be seeking or adding new enrollees, particularly sole proprietors going forward. Again, we don't know for sure, but that would seem that would be um, a wise course of action. Um, The status of the AHP as an ERISA plan could be in jeopardy, meaning the AHP would have to comply with the ACA's individual and small group protections. Um, Any sole sole proprietors would have to exit the AHP. Uh, They could potentially qualify for a special enrollment in the exchange. Again, this is thinking way down the road. Right. We were talking just before we started recording about a huge conflict here, and that is the idea that the AHP is an ERISA plan and has already promised benefits to these people for the remainder of the plan year at least.
0: Right. And in fact, the DOL uh, uh, said that really in, in a statement that they released on the case, that they were reviewing the outcome of the case, but they did remind plans that you do have an obligation to your participants to provide the coverage that you have agreed to provide. So right. I think for those that are already enrolled in a plan, I don't. I, I, it sounds like the, the better outcome is to continue that plan year um, and let it play out from there.
1: But obviously the biggest impact depends on the next steps in the lawsuit. Uh, If the decision is stayed, uh, put on hold pending an appeal, um, that helps for the short term, but we'll have to wait and see uh, what the appellate court uh, thinks of all this and whether it works its way up even further beyond that. So I think that's the general feeling out there on all this. Uh, Let's get to a resolution. I think it would be wonderful to be in a place where Um, We can stop these situations where people, associations, employers, plans are moving forward thinking it's okay when, in fact, it's very much in the air. Uh, But unfortunately, that's not the environment we're in at the moment for AHPs. Uh, AHP plans are sort of in this frustrating type of limbo and are just going to have to wait and play it out.
0: And just a plug for our compliance corner, we will certainly, any additional guidance that we are able to find in terms of its impact on those states that were not a party to the lawsuit, we will place information in our compliance corner or even potentially a Washington Update email blast that goes out. Um, so we will stay on top of this so that we can help clarify um, the environment, as you say, as soon as there is more clarification to be had. So, Chase, I appreciate you walking us through this. It was a good diversion from single payer. We'll, we'll get back to that next time, but sure. an important diversion nonetheless since it is uh, very timely. And as we like to say on this podcast, we thank you for joining and... That's That's a wrap. wrap. Thank you very much.